Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Now, today with me, I have Les Lamy. That's right. You, you may remember his wife was with us just a few weeks ago, Lexi, and uh, I enjoyed that conversation with her, but she tells me your story's a lot better than hers, and so I said, well, I have to have him to to tell his story as well. So hopefully she hadn't hyped me up for for a bunch of nothing here. Right. Well, you know, I don't know if it's better, but it's definitely different and a lot longer because <laughs> I'm I'm 43 and she's 26. Wow. So. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have pictured you to be 43. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Les, you are from Conway, Arkansas, I am. Yes, originally? From Conway. Uh, kind of born and raised there. Uh about third generation Conway. Okay. So tell me a little bit about growing up, brothers, sisters, mom, dad in the home. Yes. Uh, so I grew up uh, in a relatively privileged life. I have a younger brother. My dad was a doctor in Conway, a chiropractor. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had my grandparents in town, uh, basically grew up at the country club there in Conway and uh, played sports, a very privileged lifestyle, went to church. My parents were very faithful to take us to church. I rebelled from that uh, early on. And I guess I was, uh, you know, saved or baptized at age 14. The way I say it is, uh, you know, I guess I had saving faith at that time, but I'd never really put Jesus as Lord of my life, which looking back growing up, I never really developed the foundation uh, of faith and I never developed the the wisdom that comes along with uh, putting Jesus as Lord of your life. And as I got older and went through hardships, uh, I had no, I was the man that built his house on sand, mm-hmm. right? And when the storms came, uh, the house came tumbling down. Gotcha. So did you go to school in Conway? I did. So you're a wampus cat. I am. Yeah. Yes. Go so, cats. So uh, our listeners can look that up and see what kind of uh, creature that is. Uh Moving to Central Arkansas, I was raised in Boonville. Okay. Uh, so moving to Central Arkansas, the Wampus Cats was just uh, beyond anything we could ever comprehend. Right. Well, you know, it's four legs to run with the speed of light, two to fight with all its might. So yeah. <laughs> yes, go Cats. Never heard that before. But uh, <laughs> so, what was your what was your sport of choice in school? Well, I, you know, I I was a fairly good athlete. I played football, baseball, uh, basketball. Like I said, I grew up at a country club, so I played a lot of golf, um, uh, basketball. I became a little height challenged as I as I vertically uh, challenged, <laughs> as uh, I would say. Uh, so in high school, it was football, baseball, and and golf. Um, played those all the way through uh, my senior year of high school. Gotcha. Now, did you say you had siblings? I have a younger brother, okay. two, two years younger. Okay. And so your dad being a chiropractor, I'm sure he was fairly well known 
in Conway. Yes, yes. You know, he would see 60 or 70 patients a day. Yeah. So uh, he, we would go out to eat lunch and things, and, and he would basically know everyone in the room, yeah. or they would at least know him. What was it like growing up having that kind of prestige anytime you went somewhere that everybody knew who your dad was? Well, you know, looking back on that, um, I probably took it as pressure that I had to perform, that I had to, uh, you know, I look at back on my childhood and my life and it was kind of like you, you weren't allowed to have any issues. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up thinking that, I don't know that that was ever drilled into me, but I, I thought that, you know, you, I, I basically had to be kind of invincible. Nothing ever could really be wrong. Um, and I think, that mindset uh, is what gravitated me towards the drinking and, and the party lifestyle because I could be more myself. You know, the inhibitions drop and you can be more um, outgoing with a couple of drinks of alcohol and, you know, just feeling like, uh, you know, you you couldn't, you, nothing could be wrong. Right. So you, you grew up in one of the houses where if there was trouble, it stayed in the house. And when you went outside, you put on the happy face and right, straightened right. your collar and tucked in your shirt and everything was perfect. For sure. For sure. You know, if it was, it was if it was family business, we kind of kept it, kept it in the family. Yeah. And that, that's a lot of pressure on, on a child to, to not really be able to express their emotions, even really to their friends, I would assume. Right. You know, well, my friends were kind of the same way. You know, we, uh, you know, it was a lot of uh, cracking jokes and, but obviously we didn't sit around and talk about our emotions and our mm -hmm. feelings, um, which, uh, you know, it's kind of an unwritten rule as a, as a boy growing up. Um, you know, if, if you like this girl and she ends up rejecting you, you can't allow that to, to affect you or, right. um, you know, uh, you make this mistake, uh, this, you lose this game, you have to be, be tough. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't cry about it. So. Right. No crying in baseball. No crying in baseball. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, that trend is, is kind of going away nowadays that, that we allow our, our kids to have those emotions and to be able to talk about those problems. And uh, I know I, you know, with my son, which he's, he's six, uh, but when he has a complete total meltdown, I, I let him have his meltdown and then four or five minutes later, are you finished? You know, right, to, right. to allow him to express that emotion. So uh, I'm sure that as a child, that was, uh, was very difficult for you. So moving from high school, did you immediately go into college? I did. So uh, from from high school, I went to the University of Arkansas. Uh, in Fayetteville. In Fayetteville okay. and uh, pledged a fraternity and uh you know, it, it was good for a while. Uh, it was, I already had developed a party mentality. Um, you know, I would do well, but then I would sabotage myself uh, with over drinking, uh, run-ins with little troubles here and there. And uh, so Fayetteville, you know, growing up under your family's protection in Conway and then moving to Fayetteville in a fraternity with 50 guys, all experiencing that next level of freedom for the first time. I held it together for a little while, and then ultimately that sort of started going sideways. Now, at what, what age did you begin drinking? 
I would probably say 15, 16, going into high school, you know, the older guys, you're, you're go from eighth grade into ninth grade. And then in Conway, once you get into 10th grade, every 10th, 11th and 12th was all, all together. I had friends that were older than me. And, and once I started uh, going into the 10th grade, started getting my own, own vehicle, they started kind of coming and grabbing me, you know, mm -hmm. on the weekend and taking me to the high school party. Right. And, you know, there it was usually a keg party or some kind of party like that. And, uh, yes, I started drinking and, and hanging out and partying and being the young guy, you know, you kind of come in with, uh, you're uncomfortable, you're, uh, anxious about yourself and around all these older people. And so a couple of, you know, beers would loosen you up and where you could talk to people. Sure. And so do you remember the first time that you took a drink of alcohol? Or is it just kind of now a blur? Well, it it's kind of a blur, but I do remember my first uh, incident with alcohol. And um, basically, uh, we were living, we were building a house. And so we were living in a little rental house and we were all kind of uh, in there together, my family. And, um, and I would sleep on the couch a lot. And I remember... I went out with some guys to a, to a high school party. I was 15, 16. Um, the last thing that I remember is my parents waking me up on the couch and my dad saying, Les, are, are you drunk or what's going on? And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I was in a stupor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? Wow, what, what's going on? And they said, well, you just came into our bedroom and peed on the nightstand. You know, I, I don't obviously I don't remember any of that, but that was looking back, that was kind of the first like blackout over drinking uh, incident that happened in my life. And uh, and I had multiple, you know, mm -hmm. multiple incidences like that, that that happened between age 15, 16 until ultimately I gave my life to the Lord and, and put all of that down. Sure. So. I was probably, which I'm 36, I was probably early 30s. I had a good friend that I would go to his house and stuff, and he would, he was a raging alcoholic, uh, just, but he was the party alcoholic. I mean, he got, he wasn't the the mean guy. He was the lovey-dovey, you know, physical touch kind of uh, everybody, let's just be friends kind of alcoholic. Right, yes. And so I remember one night I was staying at his house, and he, I woke up, and he was in the corner of the living room, peeing in the corner. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Of course, he has no knowledge. And so uh, this was back in the time where you could change the uh, time on your iPhone. And so he had to be at work at like 530. So at one in the morning, I changed his time to like 445. So his alarm went off at two. And uh, would, I just shook him, you've got to wake up, you're going to be late for work. And uh, that sobered him up pretty quick. You know, I've never, I can't say I've never consumed alcohol, but I've never consumed alcohol to the point of where I lost control. And so I really don't understand the concept there of uh, really just trying to make everything stop with alcohol, which is what really leads to being an alcoholic is that there's always something you're trying to stop. Right. Well, um, and I, I don't know where you're kind of going with that, but, you know, we had me and my buddies kind of had a couple of sayings, you know, if one's good, 10's better. And, uh, you know, if, 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 you, if I don't remember it, then it didn't happen. Right. Gotcha. So yeah. uh, we would, when we 
went on a little too far. Uh, we had little sayings that would, you know, make justify sure. what, what we did, which I think is what we all do, right? When, you know, when we when we know we've gone a little too far, we we do something to kind of justify, right? Yes. So so you were at UA Fayetteville. And you were an accounting major, is that right? Well, uh, so I was there for two years, and uh, ultimately alcohol uh, ended my time there. Um, I was partying way too hard and got in, I got a couple of DWIs. Uh, ultimately, I just faded out. And uh, so I ended up transferring. I uh, went to Hendricks College in Conway, which is where I, Ended up getting my degree in accounting, yes. Now, is Hendricks the Methodist school or the Presbyterian? It's a Methodist school. Okay. So it's very liberal. Right. Uh, there I was kind of introduced to uh, other religion types, uh, Buddhism, took a lot of philosophy. Uh, I kind of got my act together while I was there for a short period. Uh, it was a smaller school, so I was held more accountable to be in class and study and stay on top of that. I stayed on top of my grades. Mm -hmm. In my spare time, I, I was still pretty much a wreck. Gotcha. So how did you how did you function, you know, going and, and drinking and then trying to be at class on time and keep your grades up? How how did you do that? Well, I was more of a I guess at that time I would say I was more of a weekend warrior, right? I wasn't uh drinking every day. I wasn't a full-blown alcoholic. Um I would I would put it down. It was more of a party thing, social thing, going out on the weekends, uh going to parties, but during the week I would I would hold it together and go to class and study and do those things. Which then you're back in Conway where all of your friends assumably are and you are more familiar with with things. So are you kind of thrown right back into the fire? So a lot of my friend group went to Fayetteville, but I still had friends that went to uh, UCA uh, there in Conway. And I had a couple of friends that went to Hendricks. So I was kind of bouncing around from place to place. I knew a lot of people, uh, hung out at a lot of different parties, but I wasn't necessarily, I wouldn't say I was thrown, I was creating the fire. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. the 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 fire was me. Yeah. So, um, I didn't have to go. I wasn't thrown into anything. I was I was the one that brought the party. Gotcha. Of. You were the thermostat. Everybody uh, else just rose to the temperature. That's right. That's yeah. right. So so you ultimately graduated from Hendrix? I did. I graduated from Hendrix in 2001, 2002 area or time frame. And then I moved immediately to Little Rock. Um, I got a job in an accounting firm in Little Rock and it was uh, every 22, 23-year-old's dream. Uh, I got put on a team. We did uh, work throughout the country. And so we'd be on a team of four or five guys. And, and basically, the, the firm would give us uh, the firm credit card. And we would fly out, go to Des Moines, Iowa, go to Charlotte, North Carolina. And we would go and audit at a, at a client's uh place of business. And there I was introduced to Adderall. So we basically work all day long in the, in the conference room and we would go out at night. Well, we would, you know, five guys in their twenties, uh, entertaining themselves in a, with in a, a company credit, with card. a company credit card in a, in a city. Uh, you can imagine what we got into, uh, late nights, uh, out drinking, uh, 
And the next morning we would have to show back up, you know, at eight or eight thirty at the clients and we would all be hung over and Adderall became a way for us to shake off the the cobwebs and and do the work that we needed to do to then get through the week and fly back out, fly back to Little Rock on a Friday or Saturday. So it wasn't so much about the Adderall giving you any type of high. It was more of using it to get your thoughts back together to right. be able to do your work. Yes, it was it was a sobering up uh, gotcha. tool. Gotcha. So were you a CPA or? I was. So I, I got my CPA license. Um, like I said, uh, God has gifted me with being able to retain information. Um, so I was able to study and had the discipline enough. I knew I wanted things in life, right? I, I wanted the house. I wanted the car. I wanted the boat. So I had the willpower enough to study and do the things that I thought I needed to do in order to obtain those. Um, you know, I would study, take the test, pass the test, get the certificate, whatever it was that the next thing, um, I was able to do that. In the meantime, my, my social life was constantly in a state of flux. Um, I basically look at it as I, I straddled the fence for a lot of years. Gotcha. At what point did did you get married? Was it while you were still working for the accounting firm? About 26 or 27, I decided I wanted to go to law school and further my education. Um, and the girl that I was kind of dating at the time and really more on the weekend socializing with, uh, she ended up getting pregnant with our uh, my son, Drew. And you know, coming from the background that I came from, uh, I thought the right thing to do would be to get married. So as I entered into law school, I also entered into marriage and entered into being a father for the first time. Which is a lot. Which was a lot. Uh, 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 it was an extreme amount of uh responsibility at the time for where I was in my life. Um, so how did you manage, were you still working going to law school? So, yes. Yeah, so um, I worked at the accounting firm from eight to five. Uh, I would go to law school at night. It was four nights a week from six to nine, try and cram in some, you know, study of that. Um, you know, the accounting firm, was a very high-paced uh, accounting firm. We did a lot of tax work, and you know sometimes it would be going back to work at night uh, to finish up what I was doing, working on the weekends. You know I was still working 50, 60 hours at times of the year, and trying to get a law degree. And and you know had a newborn, a new wife. Um, so I wasn't around much at that time as far as a family and family, you know, it just wasn't a priority at that time in my life. I was no, I was in no position to be a father at that time. I, and how old were you at that point? I was, that was 28 and I ultimately got out of law school at age 30 or 30, 32 probably. Okay. So, because uh, traditional law school, you can't work a job while you're in law school. They don't, it's not that you can't, they don't allow you to. Right. Yes. So the, the incoming uh, group that took the day classes, uh, you know, that their work, you have to sign a, a statement saying I will, will not work. Um, and then as they progress, they're allowed to clerk at certain law firms or whatnot. I was doing it 
the most difficult way that you could possibly do it because I, you know, I had to work to support the my new family. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I didn't really have the option at that time. So do you just have the one son? I had the one son and then two years into it, we, we also had a daughter. Okay. So Drew and Lexi are their, their names. Okay. But your wife is Lexi. And too. my wife is Lexi. Does that get confusing every now and again? Well, we uh, we call my daughter Lexi One and my <laughs> wife, current wife, Lexi Two. They don't have the t-shirts like Thing One, Thing <laughs> right. Two. Well, yeah. they they we should get them made. Yeah, yeah. That that I, I'm sure your wife would appreciate that. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, so you're you're in law school. You are newly married, have a child, then two years later have another child. Right. Still working. Where's your social life? The accounting firm that I worked, it was a lot of us there. And so the social life became at work, right? So it would, we work all day. Uh, I would go to school. People would still be at work. You you know, the refrigerator had, you know, beer and we had, you know, different types of alcohol. You could mix a drink, work in the evenings. Um, you know, it was a it was a work hard, play hard mentality, which was ideal for me at the time of my life. I mean, obviously it wasn't ideal, but that's that's the way I viewed things. Sure. So at what point did it really just, as far as your marriage and everything, start falling apart? It was difficult from day one. And to compound on top of that, um, I started having affairs. So I I couldn't be trusted at that time in my life. I never put down what I was doing previously when I got married. I just continued living the lifestyle that I was living before. Basically, the fights started, um, the tension in the house started, and my way of dealing with that was to run the the other direction. You know, run back to work go to the bar, meet meet some buddies, watch a football game. I never knew how to deal with conflict uh, growing up. My, my family, my, my parents were married and there was not much fighting in the house. But in my family, the family I had created, there was a lot of fighting and a lot of tension. And uh, as my kids got older, I didn't want them seeing that, so I would I would just leave. So so what it sounds like is that your life continued. Marriage was just something that was added to the laundry list of things that you had to do. Right, right. So it, so you just kept being less. And, I kept I kept pursuing what less wanted. Right. Um, you know, it was all about. I, I was selfish. I was mm-hmm. selfish in my ways. Um, and uh, I just kept doing what I wanted to do. You know, I my goal was to to be a millionaire. You know, I, that was my thing. I, I the people around me were working towards that. We were all working towards the next toy. It was kind of the the guy that dies with the most toys wins, right? Mm. And um, so that was that was my only ambition was mm. my my success. Yeah, I'm about nine hundred ninety nine thousand dollars <laughs> right. away from being a millionaire. Right. Yeah. At what point in time does the marriage then dissolve? It took a lot of time for that ultimately to dissolve. Um, so when I finished law school, uh, I decided that I wanted to hang my own shingle. 
moved back to Conway. Uh, I opened up my own law firm. I could, I was doing just whatever to keep the keep the lights on at that time. Started a couple of side businesses, a construction company that did roofing and insurance uh, work. And so I was, I went from working and going to school uh, 60, 70 hours a week to starting my own thing and doing the same, right? And uh, so as my kids started getting older, I tried to coach them in baseball, uh, Little League, uh, sponsoring their teams. And my marriage just got worse and worse. Um, and the tension in the house, my wife at that time, uh, she started uh, dealing with her own issues. Um, so we were just, we met ourselves coming and going. That, that was basically my marriage. Um, you know, as I was pulling in, she was pulling out. Um, if we were there together, it was uh, a lot of tension, a lot of fights. And ultimately in 2014 or 15, uh, she had had enough, I'd had enough. And I got a call at work one day from my mother. She said, look, Misty, which is my wife at the time, uh, Misty's had enough. She's called me. She's packed all your things up and they're on the front porch. What was that like getting the call from your mother and not from, from well, your I wife? Well, I mean, honestly, at the, at the time I was very relieved. Mm. Uh, there was a part of me that was, that was very relieved that that ultimately happened because I didn't believe really in divorce or my family didn't believe in divorce. So we were just trying to hold on. I wasn't going to file for divorce. Um, so she kind of did us a favor. And so I was relieved on one hand, but you know, once the dust kind of settled, I was, you know, had a lot of shame, a lot of guilt that I couldn't make that work. But did you um, want it to work? I did not want it to work. I mean, it had gotten to a place where it was unrepairable. I mean, or I say that. We did counseling. Um, you know, she had her own issues, anger issues. Um, I don't know. We were just not in any place we weren't mature enough. We were basically uh, fire and ice. And it ultimately dissolved. And I look back on that. And I think uh, I think God was protecting my kids. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable with them growing up in that type of, of an environment. Um, but and you I knew there wasn't any way to stop it what, together. I had created so many bad habits in my life that that I couldn't get out of. By this time, I was I was taking pills uh, on a daily daily basis. Just uh, just Adderall, or did well, you it add was uh, it was I was adding things as I went along. Um, uh, I had a guy come into the office in twenty fourteen ish time frame that had been in a motorcycle wreck and uh, was pretty injured and. He had been prescribed unlimited oxycodone as well as he had a prescription for unlimited Xanax. Um, and so I would, my lifestyle consisted of uh, an Adderall in the morning, uh, an oxycodone in the afternoon, and a couple of drinks and a Xanax in the evening to kind of wind down. My office at that time, there was probably 10 to 12 of us in the office and in the evenings, it was kind of a, a party, social environment. 
And then I would get home late if I went home at all, because by that time my wife was calling saying, look, if you come home, I'm calling the cops or, you know, threatening things like that. And it was, it was just ultimate chaos uh, is what my life consisted of at that time. So what did, uh, of course, we've covered what Adderall did was it kind of sobered you up to be able to do your work, but what, what purpose did the hydrocodone serve in taking it? Well, I mean, it, it just felt good. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, I was always looking kind of for the, for the next, for the perfect buzz. Right. And what it did is it just numbed me out, uh, from having to deal with myself. Um, you know, and when you're, when you're working and you're grinding and you, you kind of do it and, but your mind goes other places. And so it just allowed me to feel good while I was just grinding out the daily task of life. Right. So I was at a conference one time in Dallas and I had this major, major headache and I hadn't eaten because when I get headaches, I'll vomit if I eat. It's just one of those things. And so uh, my wife, uh, I somehow or another had one of her pill bottles in my stuff. And she said, I think there's a hydrocodone in there. And, and she said, just take the hydrocodone, you'll feel better. And I'm, you know, I'm that guy, that, uh, but my head really hurts. So I remember laying in this bed at, at Dallas at the Hyatt there and just like a kaleidoscope colors going around and, and thinking to myself, I never want to do this again. Like this is terrible. And so I'm going, how could anybody like this experience. And so I guess I had the alter, the different opposite reaction as to where some people are, I want that all the time. You know, I want that kind of, which I'm sure it's not like that all the time. I mean, once you, once you get to a, a place of where it is just kind of numbing everything that's going on, but I'm sure it was the combination of not eating anything and then just, you know, taking it. But, but in those moments I'm going, you know, why does, why does anybody want to, to do this? You know, at that stage in my life, that, that was kind of the, the feeling that I was chasing, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then once you do it for a little while and your body becomes accustomed to it and, uh, when you stop, you know, you feel terrible. So it, it's kind of a never ending downward spiral of, of taking it, stop taking it you feel like you have the flu so you have to take some more and and you just keep you know going around you know that circle i basically got on the ride and i didn't know how to get off mm -hmm. there was a there was a time in college where i had a, a friend who had made some gummy bearish kind of stuff and he said you know he didn't tell me what it was obviously and uh, he says, here, taste these, see if they do really taste like gummy bears. It was the worst thing that I'd ever tasted in my entire life. And all of a sudden, I could hear the color blue. You know, it was just like everything was opening up, and, and I'm like, what did you put in this? And he was like, oh, well, there's marijuana in that. And, and once again, I'm going, who wants to do this? You know, who wants this kind of thing? And and I, I think, though, that if, if I had a lot of stuff going on, you know, if there was a lot of trauma or depression or anxiety, that I could have been drawn to that. And so do you, do you think that in, in, you know, 
kind of growing up with the alcohol, it was more of a, a peer pressure-ish kind of social thing. But then when it got into, you know, Adderall, while it was kind of social, that it got into a point of where you had to have it in order to continue doing what you were doing. I don't really know. I just didn't have that voice going off in my head of why would anyone want to do this? Um, I was more of a push the limits of, oh, this feels good. What's the next thing I can do? What's the next thing? And I'm completely not that guy. (laughs) Right. And uh, you're very blessed to not be that guy because uh, I was always the guy that wanted more. Mm-hmm. I wanted more in everything, more money, more life, higher highs. But I have come to realize that the higher the highs are, the lower the lows can be as well. Mm-hmm. And and the higher the risk. And the higher the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I kind of talk about my life from the standpoint of uh, I use some golf metaphors. And whenever growing up, uh, my granddad took me to play golf uh, a lot. And in Conway, there's a couple of shorter holes, but they're, they're dog legs. I don't know if you have, if you've ever played golf, but basically it's a, it's a crooked hole. It's too expensive for me to play golf. It's it's one of those elite attorney kind of privileges. Right. So basically uh, it's a, it's a hole that goes straight for a little bit, but then it, goes to the right or to the left and there's trees uh, on both sides lining the fairway and my granddad would say okay on this hole what you need to do is is just kind of hit it out there in the fairway take a three iron or a four iron uh, and hit it out there in the fairway and then you can hit it on the green and try and try and make your par well quickly i thought to myself well if i can just take my driver and hit it across over the trees, then I can try and hit it on the green or hit it up closer. But in doing that, also, if you don't hit it good, you end up in the trees, and which, which they call jail. In my mentality, I was always the one that tried to hit it over the trees. And when you don't hit it good, you end up in jail. Mm-hmm. And you can get over there and you can hit it around some more and hit more trees. And at the end of the day, if you can't get it out, you just pick your ball up and go to the next hole. And that's kind of the metaphor for how I lived my life. You know, it was if I didn't hit it over the trees and I got in the trees and I couldn't get out, then I would just pick it up and go to the next hole. Gotcha. So now you are 32, 33 years old, have your own firm. Your wife has left you or really put you out. Yes. Yes. And where do you, where do you go from there? Well, so I was prideful enough. Uh, you know, my family came around me and said, look, you can stay at our house. Um, but I was so prideful that I didn't want anyone's help. You know, I can figure this out on my own. And so it consisted of uh, sleeping at the office. Basically, I called a contractor and he finished out a shower. So I was basically just sleeping there at the office, showering, had my clothes on a rack. And I was just going to push through. But when I had so many plates spinning at the time that when that one plate started kind of wobbling and fell, then all the plates started following, falling. And after about six months or a year, so I was working, trying to make money so I could pay the house payment, pay the credit cards, 
you know, everything that my kids were doing. And ultimately, I just gave out. Um, I just couldn't stand under the pressure anymore of uh, supporting all the different households as well as the employees that I had. You know, they were looking to me to get their paycheck every Friday. The pressure of supporting all these different people based on my productivity just became too much. And I ultimately uh, just just caved in. I told everyone, look, you're going to have to go find something else to do. I can't do this anymore. And I locked the doors, just started running the opposite direction. So in that in that interim bef- between getting divorced, living in your office and closing the doors, do you ever remember an employee coming to you and, and just less, are you okay? Is there, I'm worried about you. I'm concerned. This isn't like you. This isn't normal. I don't remember an employee saying that, but I had multiple people, you know, come by, check on me, look, you know, we're here. Everyone that I knew knew that they couldn't do anything, Mm -hmm. right? It had to be me doing something. And I didn't know what that thing was. And I didn't even know at the time to search for what the next thing was. You know, I basically painted myself into a corner and I just didn't know how to get out. And, you know, people would come by and say, look, you ought to look at rehab. You know, you've got to come to the end of yourself and, and receive God. And all of that stuff would just bounce off of me. Like I was in no place to uh, really receive anything like that. And, um, and I just, I just kept running. Right. And uh, I'd started down this path and I didn't know how to change what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Nor probably did you want to really, nor did I want to, Um, even though you knew it was destructive, it was, well, if I can just get through today, then tomorrow's a new day and we can start. And maybe it will be different tomorrow. I didn't even have that recognition or awareness at that point in my life. Um, You know, I I was still collecting checks from work that I had done previously. So I had money and now I had time because I just basically stopped working and I would just go get lost. And I did that for about a year or so until um, until ultimately it all came crashing down. So when you say you would go get lost, what exactly does that mean for you? Well, I would. Uh, I had a like an off-road vehicle at the time, and I would I I went and picked up a dog at the at the Humane Society, and me and this dog would load up my vehicle, and I always had a drink, a plethora of assortment of drugs, and we would just take off and go get lost in the woods and walk around. You know when you're in that state of mind, you have all this energy and you have no really thought of what's going on or how this is going to affect others or your life, or you just know you're running. And that's, that's the best way that I know how to explain it is I just ran and went and got lost. And I would try and see my kids when I could. I was normally late to do that. I was just, um, 
I would, you know, had a hotel room that I would stay at frequently there in Conway and, you know, you're halfway trying to hold it together. And then the other part of you is just wanting to run from all of it and not knowing where you're going. Mm -hmm. You're just wanting away. Right. So, so at what point was the Adderall, hydrocodone, Xanax, alcohol, no more that, that you had to have something else? Well, so ultimately those things led to different things, but with all the same effect. Um, so it led to harder. Um, so when the last year of living that life, uh, it was smoking methamphetamine, it was snorting heroin and snorting Xanax. Um, for a year, I went on about that every day um, until ultimately it came to a, a screeching halt. And, and what caused that that halt? So the way I like to say this, and in, in the spirit realm, I think God looked down on me and showed me mercy and grace and said, look, I've seen enough of, of what Les is doing. Um, he sent his angels to basically create situations where I had no, nowhere else to go but to him. Uh, in the physical, I got uh, pulled over one day and the uh, officer asked to search my vehicle. He went through and found everything that I was carrying and handcuffed me and took me to the police station. That was the start of the end of the less that I was at that time. God, God decided he wanted to rebirth me into the person that you see today. The next morning after going through that, uh, being handcuffed, taken down to the station, um, I bailed out and on the front page of the newspaper there in Conway, you know, while you're doing all this, the drug addict or the person running is kind of the last person to know, right? They're the last one to be aware of what they've become. So I still didn't realize the significance of what had happened. And uh, so the next morning, my dad comes and gets me and he's like, look, you know, this, he showed me the front page of, of the newspaper and it basically said local attorney. Uh, arrested for drug possession and had my mug shot. And uh, my mom, she couldn't even come out of, get out of the bed. You know, she was devastated. And uh, so I agreed to, at that time, to go to rehab. And and the thing was, no one viewed it from a, <clears throat> a spiritual bankruptcy or whatever the spiritual was that was going on in my life. It was more of how do we protect him from losing his law license and his accounting license? Like, how do we how do we protect less from losing his future ability to earn a living? Uh, basically, damage control. Damage control. And so you you agreed to go to rehab, but you your intention of going to rehab wasn't necessarily to get better, but to be a better defense. Right. And, it was and, a, uh, it was, let's go to rehab so you can tell everyone that you're dealing with your issue and 
when you go in front of the judge or in front of the bar association, you can say, look, I went to rehab. I took care of it. It wasn't treating the ultimate issue that I had. And so I went to a 30-day program in Little Rock uh, called Oasis, and I, I, it was all a blur. I, I don't even remember hardly being there. Um, you know, they put me on Suboxone to come off of the withdrawals from the opiates. And it was in two weeks in, I was, you know, telling everyone, look, I'm fine. I'm ready to go. And um, so I left the the rehab after the 30 days. I had to get my certificate. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, now did you leave on Suboxone? I left on Suboxone. Okay. And uh, so, which uh, not to interrupt, but for those who do not know what Suboxone is, it is a drug that they give you to wean you off of, like methamphetamine or hydrocodone, those those uh, opioids or barbiturates that you take to to bring you back to where you can manage without intense medical DTs and, and things of that nature. Right, right. It's it's to ease the withdrawal process. Um, so I never had a true awakening at Oasis. I never had that, you know, moment of how did I get here type experience. Um, it was just the next thing that I had to do in order to satisfy everyone that was saying, look, you've got to do something. Now, uh, and once again, not to interrupt you, but and and I'm not assuming this. I'm just asking the question. Did it ever just make you think, well, I'm a lamey. I'll get through this. Definitely. You know, it's, um, I was just very entitled. I was very prideful and it, the rules didn't apply to me. Right. I was special. I still in the back of my mind still thought that, um, even though my world was basically crashing in around me, I still was so arrogant. Um, so my attorney said something to me one day that's always stuck. And uh, his name's Frank Shaw. Um, I know he Frank. A, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. Family friend. I'm not um, going to tell you how I know him or <laughs> how we met, but uh, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. And uh, he planted a seed that stuck with me. He said, Les, um, you are on the corner of arrogance and ignorance, mm -hmm. and it's time to move off. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't, you know, it was a seed that has just bloomed in me that, you know, at the time I was like, what's he talking about? Arrogance and ignorance. And that was the seed that basically started the transformation of mm -hmm. my of my life. And, uh, and he was a, a vital key in getting me to the place that I ultimately needed to be. So when I left the 30-day program, I went back to doing exactly what I was doing. I had a court date coming up uh, for what I'd gotten in trouble for. And the, when I showed up, the, the judge asked me if, if I could take, pass a drug test. Um, and I immediately just said no. And now, assuming in Faulkner County, you know, all of these people, you probably knew the judge. I knew the judge. I knew the prosecutor. Frank was representing me. Um, Frank had even told me, before I went, he said, look, they're going to make you take a drug test. And 
I still, in my crazy way of thinking, just thought that nothing's going to happen to me. I thought it was all kind of a joke or to scare me in some way. So I, I was using all the way up until the, the day of. And so we show up at 10, 9, 10 in the morning, and they're discussing, and, and the judge uh calls Frank back into his chambers with the prosecutor and Frank comes out and says, look, they're wanting you to take a drug test. And I was like, Frank, I can't, I can't do that. Like it, I can't pass a drug test. And, uh, so he went back in there and told him, and I was standing out there in a suit and tie and they come back out and slap handcuffs on me and have me sit on a bench. Uh, and, Frank left, the judge and the prosecutor call the next case, and I'm sitting there just going, this is a joke, right? Y'all are, because in my drug-fueled addiction, I didn't feel like I was harming anyone except myself, right? It wasn't like I was, I wasn't there because I went and robbed a bank or murdered someone. Like, I, I hadn't really felt like that I did anything wrong. Obviously, I left a wake of destruction behind me that I came to realize. But at that point in my life, I was just like, why are these people beating up on me? Like, what have I done wrong? What was it like sitting there for the rest of the day, presumably having other defense attorneys come in that you knew, being sitting there, I'm guessing in the jury box, yes, uh, yes. handcuffed? What was that experience like? It was exactly what I needed. It was the thing that started humbling me down to a place where I needed to be. And it started the the period of less just being set down by the Lord, you know, and um, from there, um, so I'm there all day, you know, and they're calling the next case and the next case and the next case. And these attorneys are coming in and they're just kind of, you know, I know them. And they're looking at me going like, well, what has, and what obviously ha what they has become? Obviously, they can't talk to you. Right, right. Yeah. No one can really look at me, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it just became like, you know, what has happened? Like, this is not, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. Mm -hmm. This wasn't supposed to happen to less. So at the end of the day, you know, the the I still, in part of my thought process was, okay, they're going to, you know, unhandcuff un me. And they basically just did that to show me that, look, I'm, I've got to get my life, my act together or whatnot. And they're going to- Because your lesson was learned. I mean, you've sat yes. there all day being embarrassed yes. by, by other counterparts coming through. Yes. And, uh, but that was not, that was not the case. And so the, the judge, Judge Reynolds, which, you know, did me such a uh, good, it was a gift. He called the bailiff over and he's like, Les, you, you know, we're holding you in contempt of court. Uh, you're 30 days in Faulkner County detention. And, you know, then, and I've reset your, you know, your court appearance for 30 days and, you know, you can come back and stand trial sober. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went and they ran me through the, you know, the check-in and, took my suit off and took my tie off and threw on black and whites and uh, put me back in in the jail. And um, it was a very sobering moment, but God's grace uh, 
10 days into it, uh, I was given an opportunity to, uh, to go to Renewal Ranch in Conway, which is a faith-based uh, recovery rehab or transformation ministry. And um, that's where ultimately God did his work in my life. Um, he was just slowly breaking me down to, mm -hmm. to the place where I could, uh, I could receive what he wanted to do in my life. So backing up just a, <clears throat> a little bit here, I, I was a police officer in North Carolina for a number of years, and I don't know if it is in Arkansas the way it is in North Carolina, but if you're held in contempt of court, nobody can get you out of that contempt or uh, or make that sentence less except for the judge that held you in contempt. Right, right. And, so And so 10 days into it, you're given these options. Was it because your attorney had then gone to the judge and said, hey, if I give him these options and he takes this, then this is what we'll do. And so assumingly, if you did that and you said, yes, I'll go to Renewal Ranch, then it would have had to have been court ordered. Right. Correct. And, you know, going just back in my my life, my history, you know, I had run-ins with the law. You don't live that lifestyle and not have your little run-ins here and there, uh, DWI, public intox, or getting into a fight or, or whatever it is. It was always, uh, they would put me, you know, take me to the jail and then release me. Mm -hmm. um, I could bail out. Uh, I had the means to do that. And, but this time was different because he held me in contempt. There was no, I couldn't go anywhere. Right. You couldn't uh, be bailed. You couldn't, what I is couldn't, it, ROR? You couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't be released to just continue going on about my business. I had to sit. He set me down and... Uh, and Frank, uh, you know, my parents' church is big supporters of, of Renewal Ranch. And um, so the pastor there came and saw me. And in, in jail. In jail. And what was, because I've, you know, as a pastor of a church, I've gone and visited people in jail. What was that like for you? Because I know what's, what it's like for me as a pastor to go, but... Was it a humbling experience? Was it scary? Was it I have just ruined my name kind of kind yeah, of mentality? All of those thoughts and and feelings and emotions and just um, ultimately bringing me to a place of just brokenness. Where oh my gosh, like where what has happened? Like you wake up and you're just like, what has happened? So and you went from arrogance and ignorance to broken and humble. <laughs> correct, correct. Mm -hmm. And um, and and so they gave me the option to. Uh, they said, you know, we don't know if you if the judge will allow it, but you know, um, you would you you know be willing to come to Renewal Ranch? It's a six month program, and you know it. One place I'm thinking, oh my gosh, six months, like what, that is a long, that seems like mm -hmm. a lifetime. But at the same time, it was, uh, I don't know the events that in my mind led me there. I knew that the, the 10 days that I'd been in, in jail was an eternity. Um, I actually, a guy that was kind of sleeping next to me was reading the Bible one day and, uh, and he just kind of started sharing his heart with me and I started sharing my heart with him and just kind of had this, like God just started surrounding me with different people, just pointing me to him. And, uh, and Frank 
went back to the judge and said, look, you know, Les, Les would like to go to Renewal Ranch. Um, would you, would you sign the, the order to, uh, allow him to go? And I guess the judge said yes. And Frank came and picked me up. And, um, so I was court ordered to go to Renewal Ranch, which was, was the best thing that ever happened because as I was checking out, I'll never forget, uh, as the lady was kind of, as I was taking off my, my black and whites and, uh, putting back on my suit, uh, the lady just looked at me and she had her piece of paper that the order and said, you know, let's lay me. And I was like, yes, man, that's me. And she was like, don't let me see you again. Hmm. And that stuck. So going to Renewal Ranch, and I don't know if you've ever been there, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a beautiful location. In and, the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere and on like a hundred acres. And, um, but I just remember my parents driving me out there and basically just saying that because I had thought I had thought I'd gone to a place that I could not be recovered from. Which is the perfect place to be in order to get help and to recover is where you have to get to that place of. Right. So uh, I apologize. No, um, don't apologize. I thought I had gone too far. Uh, once I started sobering up, you know, it was always growing up. Um, it was always like, you know, those people. Yeah, I see those people need need help, but not me. And uh, but once I uh, truly realized that I, I am those people. Uh, I is those people, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we all are. We all are those people. And uh, uh, just driving there, you know, my dad said, look, he just said, look, you can recover from this. You still have a long life to live. <laughs> And I'm sure those were life-giving words and that you may not have even accepted in that moment, but looking back. Yeah, and I don't know if I've ever really said that, but those words um, and just my parents encouraging me still and getting to that place of just being broken and um, just coming to the end of yourself and... Um, just God being your only option. Like I had no, I had nowhere else to go. And, um, uh, you know, one of the biggest things I think with recovery is knowing that the people that love you the most has, haven't give up on you. But there are those people who get to Renewal Ranch or to Harbor Home that don't have anybody. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're forced into finding it within themselves to want to allow whatever takes place to take place, whether it be through an experience with the Lord or through an experience with whatever spiritual aspect they have within themselves. What did it mean to you in that moment where you knew that you had disappointed your family, 
you had disgraced the Lamy name, for your parents to look at you and say, we still believe in you. There's still hope. Don't give up. I mean, it It obviously means the world. And uh, I just remember showing up there and just, uh, I just was just open to whatever. And I look back on that and just that, that position where you find yourself and uh, where you can just say, look, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to walk. I don't know how to eat. I don't know how to dress myself. I truly started to understand all these things that people had told me, such as coming to the end of yourself. And uh, I was just so humbled and broken to where I was just open to whatever. And I don't know, that's, I, I look at it now and I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not doing anything. It's like I'm being done. And, uh, and just to stay in that place of uh, just complete humility. And that's how I'm living my life now. Um, in, in the world, we would call that rock bottom. Yes, yes. But everybody's rock bottom is different. Every, every bottom has a trap door. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think kept you from falling even farther? Getting arrested. And I didn't even think about, you know, the consequences of losing my, at that point in my life, like I didn't care about if Sally Joe was saying, oh gosh, look what happened to Les. I, I just lost, I just, everything just kind of uh, disappeared and um, like I, I just had been stripped of any ego, um, any pride that I still had, like all of it just uh, just went away. And and the fact that I was court ordered, uh, I tasted jail enough to know that I wasn't going back there. And I was open to do whatever it was that needed to be done in order and I didn't even think about, I've got to change my life. I didn't, I was just completely broken, humbled and open mm -hmm. and willing to just go through whatever it was that Renewal Ranch was going to have me do. You get there and I mean, like I said, I, I don't know what I've done. I'm just being done and I was open and after a week or two and it, you start the the fog starts to lift um and you start to feel feelings again and emotions you know my life i had suppressed all those for so long that um it was a new like a new thing that i was feeling again and and then learning how to deal with that. And luckily, um, I was in a safe place. I wasn't going anywhere. And the Lord forced me to, to deal with myself. And not, not only are you, the fog is lifted and 
you're having these emotions, but really for the first time, you're being able to express these emotions sober. Right. Well, you know, and um, learning to communicate, I couldn't run from it anymore. So I had to learn how to express it. Just going through the the forgiveness of others, but more importantly, myself, and just coming to grips with, you know, um, with what li- what happened in my life, um, and uh, and just letting all that go and just trusting God um, was a new experience for me. One question I'm asked a lot is, how do I forgive myself? Uh, and, and depending upon those situations, uh, the answer could vary. Um, but what I say in a spiritual sense is we can't forgive ourselves. God has to bring that healing into our lives. As individuals that are outside of religion and how do we forgive ourselves We've got to come to a point of where we realize that that individual who did those things no longer exists. Right. And so you now have a new identity and you have come to, here's my bad analogy. So, so feel free to laugh. Okay. <laughs> you came from less being more, being that you less are the life of the party. You bring more to the table to understanding less of you is more. The only way I can explain, um, so, um, you know, I grew up uh, hearing all the Bible stories. It was like I, like I said, I, I went, I got to a place where I just completely said, I don't know anything. I obviously don't know how to live life. And then just, I started reading and started hearing and just started believing it on its face. Um, The questions went away uh, and I just started putting into practice what, what I was reading. And when, when Jesus says you're forgiven, I just accepted that. When he says, seek the kingdom and all things will be added, I said, okay, I'm just going to do that. It all kind of just became what it became. And uh, he just shut the doors um, on my past in my eyes. And my family's forgiven me. Um, The people that matter in my life have forgiven me. And, uh, so I can live with it, you know, and, and I, I can, I'm transparent and open and he just, he opened me up and he just has me wide open and just continues to pour into me. Um, I realize that, you know, it's not a, it's not a striving thing. It's not a, the next thing that I can do It's just kind of just being and receiving and allowing him to just love on me. He's basically given me his courage. He's he's taken away any self-doubt that I had. You know, a lot of a lot of what I was dealing with was just my own insecurities and my own self-doubt and knowing that I wasn't perfect but trying to put on the perfect mask, right? And um 
and he just removed all those things. And I was around a, a bunch of other imperfect people. And then I realized that this whole world is full of imperfect people. And uh, it's just the ones that are aware of it and, and the ones that aren't. Or the ones that are aware and care. Because there are those, I think, that are aware they're not perfect, but they just don't care. Well, they're they're hiding it, mm-hmm. um, which in turn is is planting the seed of, of doubt and insecurity, which leads to the drugs and the alcohol and the overspending and the keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Um, he just brought me to a place where I... I need nothing but but him. And and what he's shown me is having him is having everything. Mm-hmm. And uh he he traded um the the mask I wore and with his presence and just getting into the glory of, of the Lord. Uh he he melts away all the the shame and the and the guilt. I, I came to realize that uh, as far as my past goes, it Everyone else is dealing with their own things. No one cares at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Uh, no one remembers. Um, and the and the people that are holding grudges towards me or whoever, it, it's more of a, an internal thing with themselves, mm-hmm. right? It's not. Uh, it's not necessarily what what I did or what they did to me. I have to forgive because I've been forgiven. I have to show them grace because I've been shown grace. And uh, in the process of doing that, he just opened me up to his blessing. And and those people that are holding grudges, it's really only affecting them anyway. Right, right. I mean, you know, uh, you can hold a grudge against someone that that no longer is living. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not doing any good. And and I look at it now, anything that I hold, any resistance, any um, any just ill will, any anything that is disrupting my connection to God is only disrupting the blessing and the next thing he wants to, to do in my life. When you come to that place and you realize that, I, I can quickly let go, uh, quickly um, forgive. You know, I, I've told people before, they say, well, I'm not talking to so-and-so because they've done this to me. And I say, you know, that that really is only affecting you um, because that person may be glad that you're not talking to them, you know, right, and, right. and it may be one of those kind of things. I do want to point out, though, that this wasn't that just you had a religious experience one day and it all went away. This was a progressive kind of working so what would you say to those people who would say, Les, I've tried this religion thing. I've been through faith-based rehab. It didn't work for me. What would, what would you say to those people? Here's the thing. Uh, so when you've lived life for so many years, you create habits. You create patterns of thought, and those thoughts create emotions. So I had, a, I had an experience with the Lord. And he basically put, you know, we have this life. I don't know what life is. It's a, it's a thing that it's we a vapor. Do. It's a vapor and it's a thing that we do. And I was kind of holding my life in front of me and examining, you know, all the mistakes and missed opportunities and things that had gone wrong. And, and the Lord just kind of came by and snatched it out of my hand and, and took off with it. And I've just been chasing it, but uh, chasing him. But through the 
process is what I have come to understand is it's creating the new habits. It's creating the new thoughts. You know, you have to get so much in to where it's overflowing. Uh, you know, the cup runneth over. And through the process of doing that, of affirming what he says and affirming the new identity that he is giving given us, it's, uh, I heard this the other day, it's a, it's a be as if, you know, you've heard the act as if, but it's a be as if, uh, be as if that I'm a child of God. You know, how does that person think? How does that person feel? How does that person act? So I've stayed in community with Renewal Ranch and other recovery ministries, and and I've I see it all the time. Guys go through and they have an experience, and then they get out and they slowly deteriorate and go back to what they were doing previously. Mm-hmm. And the old thought habits, the old ways of feeling, uh, you have to create new ones, and that's work what I've learned and what the Lord showed me is, you know, it, his world is an upside down, inside out world. And so I would, I would just say anyone that, you know, stop telling yourself that it's not working for you. Um, create a new narrative, create a new story of your life, show yourself grace, repent quickly. Um, when you get over in the weeds don't allow life to sit on you for very long. You know, I, I'm back out. I'm practicing law again. Um, I'm advocating for clients, and it puts me in an adversarial role. Um, so, you know, when you're back and forth arguing for your for your client's best interest, but you're arguing against someone that you know is has taken a different position, you know that stuff rubs off on you. And um, I've created new habits in my life. Uh, one of them is just the attitude of gratitude. And I've gone so far as to set my alarm clock on my phone every hour to just remind myself to just be thankful. Well, Les, I, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your story. And and I'm so glad that you were able to share with us today and an incredible story of, of grace and hope. And uh, just thank you for being here. Many blessings to you and and to yours. And uh, thank you, thank uh, you. It's very very good being on this morning. Sure. All right, I'm Doc Brian, and of course you can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media links are there at the bottom. How, how would we find you, Les? If if somebody is looking for Les Lamy, other than googling you, how well, how would we find you? Uh, Facebook, obviously, uh, my wife set me up with an Instagram account the other other day. And, um, you know, as far as if you're needing legal services, uh, go to justinmentonlaw.com. All right. And we will send Justin a bill for this uh, plug here. Yes. Um, all right. The.brian.com is my website. Again, all my social media links are at the bottom of that page. Of course, Doc Talks is a part of the B Frank Network. You can check out all of our podcasts at bfranknetwork.com. Once again, Les, thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening today. Have a great day. <laughs>